Hey folks, two quick things before we get going on today's episode. One, I wanted to let you know that Daryl and I are going to be doing the draft for our Classic Club Teams Knockout Tournament uh, on Wednesday. That is the date we have scheduled. We've got all 32 teams in place, which is to say we came up with 32 teams that we thought should be in the competition. Most of them in the like latter half of the uh, 20th century, early part of the 21st century. It would be weird if it was the late part of the 21st century. Uh, but we're going to be doing that draft on Wednesday, and I think our plan is to sort of do it random style. We're going to have a randomizer pick in the teams, and then we'll be announcing them on Twitter, uh, is the plan right now, subject to change. Uh, but again, that's Wednesday for today. I wanted to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. And welcome to a reigning edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me as ever on Monday, it's Mr. Ryan Bailey in a location where it's also raining, which makes me then wonder, Ryan Bailey, are we cursed? <laughs> Hello, Tay-Tay. Hello, you cool cats and kittens out there. Yes, indeed, it is raining here. Does rain signify a curse necessarily, do you think? Probably not, but it was the most ominous thing I could think of on the fly uh, to introduce the idea that we're going to be discussing curses. I don't know if it was raining like literally cats and dogs or cats and kittens, as apparently you say, uh, then maybe we could constitute it as a curse. Well, in, in TV and movies, they have the concept of pathetic fallacy, whereby if something bad's going to happen, it starts raining and thundering, ah. right? So maybe that is the precursor to what we're going to discuss today, which is, of course, mm-hmm. uh, 420, which is what it is today. Happy 420, Taylor. <laughs> Happy 420 um, to you. The perfect day course, to discuss curses, I suppose. The very perfect day. And it's a day we all celebrate worldwide because it is Shea Given's birthday. He's 43 <laughs> today. And he's a Newcastle legend. So that leads nicely into a, a topic maybe we should discuss yeah. off the top. There is another person who is famously born on 420. I'm glad you went Shea Given. Oh! Shea Given, a, a much friendlier person, I will say that much, because I've met Shea Given. He was quite nice. Uh, but when yes. Go- when Googling, I did find out the other guy who was born <laughs> that day. Oh, boy. Yeah. Ugh. Let's talk Newcastle, which is slightly more palatable. <laughs> uh, Newcastle owner Mike Ashley's in advance talks to sell the club for £310 million pounds, uh, to a consortium fronted by, uh, in this order is the way it's written, Yorkshire-born financier Amanda Staveley, who was involved in a previous bid to take over the club. Uh, UK-based Rubin Brothers, who I guess like are a property management uh, sort of thing. And then the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. That one just uh, slips in there uh, at the back end. Takeover includes plans to fund economic regeneration on the Tyneside area, in addition to significant investment in the club infrastructure and new players. Uh, they're having mandatory Premier League background checks that should be completed uh, this month. The kind of people within the uh, consortium who are trying to buy say that they don't think there will be any issues. Worth noting, the Saudi Investment Fund is not mentioned in the company house documents that were made public uh, last week. So we're not entirely sure what it's going to look like and how it's going to work, but it does seem as though uh, a bid has been lodged and Mike Ashley's days in Newcastle may be uh, numbered. Numbered indeed. I'm sure he's very upset about that of all the mm-hmm. five or six times that he actually goes to Newcastle to see his club in action. Taylor, I've got a slightly controversial take that I'd like to bring up on this. Okay. Would you permit me that? I, we'll find out. I'm wondering, obviously, there's a lot of controversy about the fact that the Saudi Investment Fund is getting involved in Newcastle. Mm -hmm. But is there a sense 
in some way, if you're a Newcastle fan, that the positives of this deal might outweigh the negatives. Now, hear me out here. Obviously, I know there's a lot of negatives about Saudi and what they're doing and um, all their involvement in sport. And Mike Ashley never committed a genocide in the Yemen or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to weigh up what Mike Ashley has done mm-hmm. with what the Saudi, Saudis may or may not have done. But Mike Ashley is the least popular soccer owner in the UK, maybe one of the least popular in the world. He sort of suppressed all success that club could have had. Newcastle haven't won a trophy since 1969. That was the Intercities Fairs Cup, yeah. And it was the FA Cup in 55 before that. They, he sort of deliberately, you know, they ne- never take any of the cups seriously. They never go uh, 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 and any, and it just sits getting mid-table and getting safe is what their aim is mm-hmm. every every year. And I've been to Newcastle several times. I've been to St. James's Park several times. It is glorious, Taylor. And those people are glorious as well and that city is incredible and I think they deserve more and I'm not saying what they deserve is Saudi investment but I also feel that the we we've lost the right in soccer in some ways to take the moral high ground on on issues like this there's you know there's been foreign investment from controversial sources Mm -hmm. you know Roman Abramovich and what happens at City and even what happens at PSG and whatnot this isn't anything new and we support that in in many ways, but we're complicit in it, aren't we? And then you look at you know there are super cups held in Saudi now. Yeah. Is it the Italian one that's been there? There's I think boxing. Italian and Spain both, and, and Spanish. There you go. There's boxing there as well. You know, it's is it a question of what we want from the Premier League? Do we want Bundesliga style with no foreign investment and a slightly insular approach, or do you want the best of the best? Do you want to open up the game to the rest of the world, and do you want the sort of the, the negatives that come with the kind of investment that you'll get? in that situation. And I'm, I'm not saying, as I say, I'm not making an equivalence between the Saudis and Mike Ashley, but I think as soccer fans, we do forgive a lot and we are implicit. We forgive a racist player or a cheat when they're on our team. That's something we discussed recently on this team. We forgive City and PSG owners or those who furlough their staff at times like now. And it's kind of an accepted part of the modern game. It's not right. But what I'm saying is, if you're a Newcastle fan, the positives of the future ahead of you now compared to the negatives of Mike Ashley. And let's not forget Mike Ashley's no saint, the way he's treated his staff. He's a very unpopular man in the UK for the, for the health and safety uh, issues that he's had with his own staff and whatnot. And as I say, once again, I'm not comparing that to what the Saudis have done. But, but you kind of are, though, aren't you? If you? I mean, you've brought it up twice now. I feel like you're trying to say he's really bad and yes, they're really bad, but he's bad too. Yeah, I suppose I'm saying I'm both really bad, but I suppose the point I'm saying is we have to, if we're going to look at this deal, we have to look at everything else about the game that we love and yeah. everything else that we accept. Yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from. I, I think there's there's two things for me. The first one is that like with um with Man City as an as an example, like I feel like they've done a good job of sort of keeping it to the level of like like we hear a lot about the sort of like gaining an unfair advantage when it comes to soccer but they try I feel like to downplay a lot of their connection to the government and then with their government we know like we have issues with it and women's rights and workers rights and things like that but like it's it's a bit more vague whereas Saudi Arabia I feel like especially lately there are very clear things that are unsettling about Saudi, Saudi Arabia uh, Jamal Khashoggi mm-hmm. obviously uh, front and center there you mentioned Yemen uh, lots of other things in turn in, in including the fact that I believe he still has members of his family. It's a very extensive family, I should add. But members of his family, I believe, are still incarcerated in a hotel and have been for like four years. So it's it's a strange uh, ownership group to be taking over. When they were linked with Man United, I, I, I believe I tweeted and still believe that if they had tried to take over Manchester United, that would have done it for me. That would have been me, my fandom done, and I would have just sort of moved on and just enjoyed the Premier League or something else. And I think that's really? probably a luxury 
of the foreign fan, and that's the second thing I was going to get at, or I think you hinted at. It's like for the people of Newcastle, there's no real choice. Like you are, you are born there. You are born into that club. It is your club. It it feels like it is more your club than Mike Ashley's. Certainly so than the new ownership group. And so yeah. I don't really begrudge them for if they get on board. And, and especially with how, how neglected that club has been. There's a good article by uh, Luis Taylor on The Guardian talking about like the very basic things they can do up front that will be light years different from th- how things are now, including like paying the staff and making sure the grounds are nice. Uh, so I think I don't really begrudge them anything. I think for people abroad who have chosen Newcastle, who like Newcastle, similar to what happened with me in Manchester United, I do feel like there is an element of you don't have this immediate born-in connection to them, so you do have the freedom to sort of look at that and say, no, this is too much for me, this is one step too far. I'm not saying people have to do that, I'm not saying I will begrudge any Newcastle fan who continues to support that team, but for me, it is a very big step in the wrong direction. Oh, I agree, and it's a step in the wrong direction, and I, I think everyone has a right to be outraged about the situations going on here. I have mm-hmm. a right about it too, but also we are complicit in this yep. because we watch this league. We watch this sport at a high Very level, true. and if, if we are to get outraged about what's happening at Newcastle, we shouldn't watch the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, and you're not wrong like with the number of other events that are taking place in Saudi Arabia and how it, it has been, sport washing, white washing, what have you, that, yeah, I mean, you can't like like pursue a 39th game you can't have competitions in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East like in the middle of a season and then say like oh but you know this is like some sort of violation of our sacred game I don't think that you can kind of have it both ways uh, so I understand then why this is probably going to move forward we should note uh, Amnesty International is opposing the move um they claim they claim it's an attempt to glamorize uh, the kingdoms. Uh, basically, basically they're trying to uh, use it as a PR tool to sort of move move away from their quote unquote abysmal human rights record. Uh, so there is some opposition there. But we know, like Taksin Shinawatra, the former Man City owner, passed his fit and proper persons test, and then I believe was indicted for many many felonies. So he was indeed. It's not the most rigorous of tests, is I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah, you're quite right there. And this is a problem a problem that's been in the Premier League a long time and across Europe, I would suggest. And I, I would even suggest if you went and scrutinised the financials of most clubs, you'd find in some form something objectionable in, in, mm-hmm. in the club that's funding them. So I, once again, I'm not saying it's right what's happening there and I don't like it at all. But part of me thinks, you know, I, I in, in the 90s watching the Premier League when Newcastle were in their prime, I loved the league at that point. It's my favourite time of all, of all time in soccer, sort of mid-90s when Newcastle were great, when they had that 12-point lead. And, uh, you know, they. I, I just thought I'd love to have seen them get really big. And now they have the chance to do that, although through controversial means. I, I don't object to another team Going, getting up there into the into the big six, basically. So if they immediately erected a statue of Ke- Kevin Keegan and then also required that the team play in baggy jerseys next season, would that kind of tick the boxes for you? Would you be a little bit more on board? Now it feels like we're whitewashing and trying to... <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe I should, back, I should back, get back from this opinion a little bit. Nah, it's fine. Uh, the final details, uh, yeah, as I said, it's basically three different parties involved, Stavely, the Rubin Brothers, and then the Public Investment Fund. That said, the investment fund uh, will assume reportedly 80% control of the club. Uh, it is one of the world's wealthiest sovereign wealth funds, so the expectation would be that though Amanda Stavely will probably be the kind of front person, the PR person, maybe Saudi Arabia trying to lay low as much as they can, uh, It's it does feel like they will be the ones kind of making the decisions if and when this move goes through. And I do expect 
expect that then they will put a lot of money to this team and it will probably be similar to when Man City first got the massive infusion. And there's a lot of similarities in terms of what they're dealing with because right now uh, they have... Who is their... Uh, Steve Bruce. I, I got confused for a minute. I kept wanting to say David Moyes. That was not correct. Uh, Steve Bruce, Mark Hughes at Man City when, when that ownership group came in and it was kind of trying to lure in the next level players that could show the statement of intent. So we've heard a lot about the transfer window and what's going to happen this summer. I am wondering mm-hmm. if Newcastle will try to flash that strength if and when this move is uh, finalized. Yeah, and they could get, was it Mbappe's worth only 35 million euros according to uh, some mm-hmm. some uh, economic estimates now because of the nature of the transfer market. It's going to collapse. So it should be very interesting when, when things do start up again. And Max Allegri being a name linked with the club as well as a manager. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, that that feels like bookmakers <laughs> sort of looking at like, who is the best <laughs> available manager who would maybe come in for a lot of money because he would command a lot of money. And it is probably Max Allegri. Uh, I'm not I sure who else po- would be Poch out there. Is probably out there. Who else? Pochettino, I'd probably take. Ooh, Pochettino is a good shout as well. Yeah, Pochettino, Allegri, those, and, and Pochettino definitely has that feel of like a manager who would Newcastle would not have been able to get. There's also still obviously speculation that they will try to bring back Rafa Benitez from China. Uh, would be a fairly expensive move, but again, that would be one that would show their intent and show the money behind it, since I think it would cost like 20 million pounds or something like that to get him out of his contract. So, lots of questions around Newcastle. I would say still uh, not a club that I will be rooting for uh, if this goes through. But you are right no, that I mean. It's a it's a global game with uh, nefarious characters who've been involved in it before, and we'll have more of them again. Uh, but I will still be uh, opposed to it. But we do maybe also have the makings of one of the things we're going to be talking about today, a curse. That like Maybe there's a, a fan who doesn't like this and places a curse upon the club until proper persons are running, uh, things can't go well. And maybe that's already been the case, uh, which explains why Newcastle haven't had success. But Ryan, we are going to talk about uh, curses, some of our favorites, some of the most famous ones. This was an idea you you had where did this come from or why do you find this topic interesting um i just like this kind of thing because i don't really <laughs> believe in curses uh-huh. and i don't believe in you know the spirit world and all that kind of thing influencing things and i don't believe that if you don't wear a certain pair of socks then your team will lose that day um because that would be a tremendous amount of influence that your socks would have over that team but i just find it really interesting that there are some of these which you can hold to account and you they kind of check out a little yeah. bit and we'll yeah. get to some of those and some of these are, uh, you can kind of see through them and you can kind of see the socioeconomic reasons they're happening. Uh, but uh, yeah. we can get to that too. But uh, which, what do you want to kick off with, Tay I want to start with Racing Club uh, uh, in, in Argentina, I believe it is. Mm. Um, this this was maybe one of my favorite ones, and I think it gets to a lot of what you're talking about. Because I, I, I also do not believe in curses. One of my favorite exchanges ever on the Football Weekly podcast was Barry Glendening. I think trying to make an argument that a team like maybe was cursed, and I forget who it was who was grilling, but was like, Are you, so you're saying a witch's curse is more likely than a fundamental error in their tactical approach. And yeah, the, it that was, was uh, Barney Rene, who was his famously yes. anti-witch's curse stuff. <laughs> yes. And I found that hysterical, though I do sort of like, I do find myself superstitious, I do cross my fingers and knock wood and all that stuff, so... I do think it's probably the psychological aspect more so than the spiritual, metaphysical, what have you. But you never know. You never know. But I want to start with the Racing Club. They win the league in 1966. They win Copa Lib uh, in 1967. They also beat Celtic to lift the Intercontinental Crown in 1967 as well. So while their fans are out celebrating, fans of uh, arch rivals Independiente, uh, who I guess are bitter by this success, they break into El uh, Cilindro, uh, the stadium for Racing Club. They bury the corpses of seven black 
cats. Uh, so right there, you've already got superstition, black cat, and then there's seven of them. They're dead. It's going to be can trouble. I, can I stop you there? Mm-hmm. So I'm I, I, I'm up to you up to you up to date on the story so far. Did they kill the cats, or did they find happen to find seven black cats? I, I appreciate that the article I was reading just listed it as they buried <laughs> the corpses. So I'm going to assume that they did not just go around finding seven black cats that happened to be dead. I'm going to guess things happened and those cats ended up dead. Oh boy! Yeah. So already Carry not on. great. Already not great energy. Um, from the time that that uh, happens, I shouldn't even say allegedly because they know what happened. Uh, there's a tidal drought. Racing uh, staged an exorcism to try to lift the curse. They dug up the pitch and searched for the cats. They only found six. In the meantime, the club goes <laughs> bankrupt. The year after they go bankrupt, a priest performs another exorcism ritual in front of a hundred thousand fans at the stadium to try to f- uh, to uh, like make things right. They do not have success. They still only have the six cats until 2001. Uh, there are some stadium renovations underway. New manager, uh, Ronaldo Melo, uh, orders a full search one last time. They find the seventh skeleton. Within months, they win the Apertura, their first Argentine title since 1966. So they find that seventh cat, and they then go on to win the title. When I read this at first, I was like, okay, this feels like maybe it didn't even happen. It felt like one of those sort of apocryphal stories of a fan burying a jersey in the stadium. Then you read more about it. You hear all the kind of history behind it and all the lore of how they tried to deal with it until they eventually found the seventh. And then they win the title. I feel like there's a little bit of – I place a little bit of stock here, Ryan. I'm feeling a little bit uh, moved by this one. This one 100% checks out, Taylor. It just has to be true. They find their seventh cat while they're doing those 2001 stadium renovations, and then they just happen to win the league for the first time in 34 Mm -hmm. years. Coincidence? Meow, B. But I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they were feline pretty bad up till that point, Taylor. I'll tell you what. Oh, my goodness. I should have known that this would be just ripe for puns, and yet I don't (laughs) think I like put on my pun armor, so I'm just going to have to weather the storm, and we'll see how it goes. Oh, weather it, you shall. <laughs> oh boy! But uh, I, I enjoyed this one. I do enjoy like the curses that feel much more like people start to get nervous. Like the ones that I think are more realistic, but I don't have any of the ones when like uh, like Bayer Neverkusen when they just cannot win the title, they can't beat the one team or what have you. That feels like a, a thing where everybody knows it and everybody gets nervous, and then you can feel the nervousness in the stadium, and that permeates into the players. This one, I just like to believe that there really was that seventh cat just holding that one little bit of negativity. They get it out, and then things are all okay. They win the title. So uh, Ryan says it 100% checks out. I'll go with that yeah. one as well. Ryan, What I do love, Taylor, what I do love mm-hmm. about this one is is the, the thought process that goes into that. We're in 1967. Mm-hmm. These Independiente fans are thinking, how can we stop them from right? having success? Should we, should we put more into our team to be better? Should we, I don't know, should we do a lasagna gate and poison their team somehow? No, let's go get seven cats yeah. and bury them under their stadium. That's the most logical way to stop them. Let's do that. Yeah, sure. Th- that's, you don't, that's what Rafa Benitez did at halftime of the 2005 Champions League final. That's why uh... Liverpool were able to pull it back. Yeah, there was the seven cat. It was the old seven cat ploy. The old seven cat ploy. Well, that might lead us, Tay mm-hmm. to our next one. Where we which hidden? I would like to bring up, which is touching the cup. Okay. The concept thereof, when players are going onto the pitch in a major final, if you touch the cup, it is generally considered bad mm-hmm. luck. Case in point, Taylor. In 2004, Monaco's Ludovic Guilly, he touched the, uh, uh, touched the European Cup as he strolled onto the field. You might remember Jose Mourinho's Porto gave him a good stuffing that mm-hmm. day. Was it 3-0 final? I believe. Yeah. Could be. Then in then in 2006, however, mm-hmm. Guili was in the Barcelona against Arsenal Champions League final. He touched the cup again, Taylor. No. He did it again. But this time, he won 2-1. So, right. so it bounces maybe out. In the, 
It, but this curse, you have to do it twice. You have to have the nerve to do it twice. Let's go, let's go for some more negative ones. 2005, so the season after Geely touched it, uh, we've got a run of three consecutive European Cup touches in the finals here. But we've got 2004 with Geely. 2005, Gennaro Gattuso did it before Milan went out against the aforementioned Rafa Benitez and Liverpool. And you know what happened there. Liv- uh, Benitez obviously got the cats out and, uh, and, yeah. and sorted that game out. for, for T- Trophy for test plus seven cats equals you know win. That's how it works. <laughs> exactly. Let's fast forward to 2012. Bayern Munich's Anatoly Timoshuk. He gave the silverware a big old high five as he strolled out onto that pitch at the Allianz Arena, Taylor. And then we all know what happened. The great Chelsea heist. So not so good for Timoshuk there. Um, and then... That same season, um, Corinthians against Chelsea in the Club World Cup final, which Chelsea earned a spot in for winning that Champions League final. Fabio Santos touched the cup, but Corinthians won 1-0. A huge upset in the realm of touching the cup. One final, one for you. 2015, uh, Dinner Pro against Sevilla in the Europa League final. Uh, who was it? Someone, t- someone from Sevilla touched the cup and they won the game. It was Kriacek touched mm. the cup and they, and they won the game 3-2. And he scored one of the goals as well. So this is a this is a curse which I, I I've kind of um, deconstructed mm-hmm. as we go here because it's long held that if you touch the cup you lose. But there are examples where you don't lose. So I'd like to say this curse is nonsense. Yeah, not not really a curse. More so maybe just like don't because that feels more again that feels like a, an individual jinx almost of if right. you touch the cup and then somebody tells you like that is a thing that would work for me or work on me rather is if I accidentally touched it if I like like are, like couldn't like Raiders of the Lost Ark style I like, couldn't look away had to touch it and then <laughs> one of my teammates is like what are you doing that's bad luck I might then like if my first touch was bad I'd be like oh there it is there's the curse like I do think it can have that emotional weight on you I'm really curious if Catuso touched it again when Milan go back and get their revenge and beat Liverpool in the Champions League final like two seasons later. I wonder if he was mm. if he touched it out of spite to be like, ha ha, I can overpower Maybe you, Maybe so. I think, I think at that point you've got to adopt strip club rules. You know, look, but you can't touch. Break the rules <laughs> and you lose the game slash get beaten up in an alleyway. It's That's the way that you should do these things, I think. That is the important rule there. The other important rule, which you might be less familiar with, Ryan, is uh, don't build your stadium on a Saxon burial ground. Were you familiar with that one? I wasn't. Yeah, Pray that, tell. That, that's a very important rule that Southampton apparently did not observe. Um, <laughs> they construct their new ground at St. Mary's. They go on to not win there for the first four months that they are playing at St. Mary's. Uh, there's much speculation about what's going wrong, why this is the case. Is it the coach? Is it the tactics? Is it the players? Is it some other issue? It's some other issue. It's the fact that, according to a white witch, uh, she revealed that the stadium was built on the site of a Saxon burial ground. The club allegedly brought in pagan a pagan goddess to placate the disturbed spirits. Uh, here's a quote for you. Sir Ridwen Dragonoak Connolly, the pagan witch who lifted the curse, said, I performed a ritual there, and because of my upbringings, I did it in Welsh. I performed a cleansing of the ground in Celtic tradition, but athletes are a very superstitious bunch, and I did a blessing for some positive energy, and it has obviously worked. The club obviously did then go on to win a game at the stadium eventually. Hmm. They, they beat Cholton. I think that was mm-hmm. their first game back, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what do you make of this one, Ryan? So, uh, burial ground. They do know that Southampton, like the area where the stadium is located, was a Saxon village at some point. So, there's some speculation that maybe this was the burial ground. I'm not quite sure how well they knew that, aside from maybe the the uh, the pagan goddess just saying, "Yeah, it's definitely burial ground." Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Burial ground, burial ground. Give me some money, and you're fine. 
<laughs> so I lived in Southampton for three years. I went to university there, and the area which St. Mary's is in is not nice. Those Saxons did not leave it in good shape for, for modern civilization. I'll say that much. But um, uh, it's, <laughs> I, I think this one checks out, basically, because the numbers are there, Taylor. The mm-hmm. numbers are there. They didn't win for, what was it, four, first four months there, and they do the sensible thing, hire that pagan witch, do the Celtic ritual, sprinkle the water on the pitch, ward away the evil spirits, beat Charlton. That's, yeah. That makes perfect <laughs> That's sense it. to me. It's, that is historically how you beat Charlton. If only Sunderland had known that uh, in the second season of Sunderland till I die. But I guess they, uh, they, they didn't go that route. They just tried to win on the field, and we all know... That's how things go south. So Ryan says, uh, avoid uh, uh, Saxon burial grounds. I think that's something that Stephen King has also taught us, is just avoid burial grounds and building upon them if you can. Uh, Poltergeist the same, and now Southampton as well. So that's another curse I really enjoyed. I, I think there's an unrevealed detail in this story that the pagan witch didn't just perform a ritual. I think there was a Faustian pact that went on here. Okay. I think that in exchange for be, being able to beat Charlton mm-hmm. at St. Mary's, uh, they, the, the, the pagan witch put a different curse on them, saying that every good player, particularly <laughs> left back, that your academy produces, you have to sell on and never actually enjoy. <laughs> All of your assets shall migrate to Liverpool, I think was the end of the curse. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we've been to Southampton. Ryan, where shall we go next? Well, there's quite a few of these cursed grounds ones. Mm. Um, I think Derby have had one. I believe Leeds have had one where they've tried to lift curses. I'd like to go to a more interesting one, Birmingham. Okay, St. Andrews. obviously. Um, apparently, travellers put a hundred-year curse mm. on their field after they were evicted from the site thereof, the site of uh, St. Andrews. Um, and in, immediately after... After their first full season at St. Andrews in 1908, they were relegated. Mm-hmm. So that, that traveller's curse, yeah, that, that carried some weight. Uh, furthermore, during the early months of World War II, parts of the ground were badly damaged by German bombs and couldn't be used for many, many years after. Let's not put that down to the coincidence of World War II happening at that point. Let's but I did read and- it was the only ground that was uh, closed due to bombing. A lot had like uh, right. like damage that was then repaired, but I think it was like it was closed for a prolonged period of time, more so than any other stadium in England. So the curse made it worse, is all I'm saying. That, okay, let's give them that. But also during wartime in January 1942, the main stand See, was completely gutted by fire, which wasn't started <laughs> oh by <my> German uh, <laughs> yeah. Messerschmitts dropping their payloads. It was started by accident. Accident, mm-hmm. ironically by the national fire service mm-hmm. when a small fire blazed out of control and uh, an, an officer do you know how this happened i Have do you read how this happened? it's incredible <laughs> <laughs> an officer grabbed a bucket uh-huh. thinking it was full of water uh-huh. and threw it over the flames it was gasoline yeah. Yeah, and it caused many thousands of damage, and the <laughs> and the club's records all, and files and everything, all their offices went up in smoke as well. So just to relay here, there there, there was a, a control blaze of some sort happening here, and they had a bucket of gasoline. Yeah, that, a bucket of gasoline. That's like an Andy Dwyer Parks and Rec sort of maneuver. <laughs> like I, I don't that that is straight out of a sitcom, like bad TV show. Like oh, I'll put it out with more gasoline. Well, we, it's Peter Griffin. Peter Griffin would throw gasoline on yeah. the fire, and then to put that out, try to throw more gasoline on the fire. That that's uh. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting approach to firefighting, to say the least. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And by the way, a bucket full of gasoline. I think that was on a mouse rat's album. <laughs> anyway, um, so this, this curse continued and continued apparently at St. Andrews and until finally one brave man stepped up, Barry Fry, their former manager. What was he there, about 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. ago? 
and in order to lift the curse, he did the sensible thing, Taylor. Yeah, he obviously. Ur- he he went ahead and uh, unzipped for England and urinated in all four corners of the field because that is how you lift a traveler's curse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he consulted uh, the, the local traveler community apparently after hearing about the curse because uh, mm-hmm. he wins his first three games, loses fifteen straight over three months, and I guess it's like okay, it's definitely the curse. It's not my own incompetence. Uh, yeah, and then he's told to urinate near each corner flag. Ryan, did you get his quote about doing this? <laughs> Go on, what is it? Um, he pointed out, which is a fair point that I hadn't really considered, when you're urinating at all four corner flags, those things are spread out. He said, uh, quote, it's a pretty difficult exercise to squirt a little by the corner flag, walk 60 yards to the next corner, and do it again four times in succession. I didn't know that their stadium was 60 yards by 60 yards, or their ground was, but who knows. <laughs> he said it didn't work. I got the sack. That said, they did win seven of their next ten after he did this, so maybe it partially lifted the curse, although at the end of the season they were still relegated, so it didn't lift it that much. It sounds like the travelers he consulted, they just thought, how, how can we get Barry Fry to like, urinate on the that field? That feels how can we far more likely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, because let's, let's remember, uh, between 1942, when the, when the um, bucket of gasoline fire happened and the point where Barry Fry urinated... Birmingham did win some games at that stadium. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing that I found most interesting about this curse, though, is so, like, obviously, urinated the corner flags, shockingly didn't work. Ron Saunders before him, uh, the manager reportedly had crucifixes hung from the floodlights. They uh, supposedly drew crosses on players' boots and on the dressing room doors. That doesn't do it. But the story, again, perhaps uh, apocryphal, maybe a little bit legend, uh, curse was supposed to last 100 years, 100 years to the day that they played their first home game. They beat QPR on Boxing Day. They sealed promotion later that season. So, a hundred years after the curse uh, was set, it expires and then they go on to have success. And that's it. Birmingham have just been wildly successful since that time and there have been no downfalls at all. Definitely. It sounds like... um Birmingham's 100-year plan coincided with QPR's four-year plan, by the way. The timelines cross. <laughs> they do. I thought it was really a bummer, though, that there was an addendum to the curse. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, go on. It will be lifted after 100 years, but then eventually you'll have to hire Alex McLeish. That was the downside. Uh, that was the downside yeah. of the curse that really, really solidified it in my mind as being a true, true curse. You never want to have to have Alex McLeish on your paybooks. Yeah, Jack Grealish will choose the other club in Birmingham, not yours. There that it was is. the uh, second addendum, I believe. Well, if you don't want to feel cursed when it comes to your big event, then today's sponsor has got you covered. You can find your perfect fit without leaving home for free with the Black Tux. The Black Tux uh, allow you to buy or rent uh, the perfect suit or tuxedo for any event you've got coming up. Uh, Or, as Daryl and I have often suggested, if you just want to feel very formal at home, uh, lots of people wearing pajamas all day, no one really getting dressed up because you're working from home, why would you? But why not instead put on like the full tuxedo from the black tux and then wear that to work uh it worked for jim halpert it will work for you you'll feel very formal you'll feel very put together i shall counter your claim that we should all just wear jammies or whatnot during this time because Mm -hmm. uh it was my it was my wedding anniversary at the weekend tay tay and you know what we did as a family on saturday we all dressed up for dinner Ooh, we did that and do you know where that dinner came from where did that dinner come from chilies nice how did how did you land upon chilies 
And it's the first time I've ever dressed up formally for Chili's. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there wearing a jacket thinking, I have never worn a jacket in Chili's before. <laughs> we, are, we are, as a family, consulted. We're going to have a nice dinner and go get some curbside delivery of a nice dinner. Uh, and the two youngest members of my family uh, apparently hold more sway in that decision process. And they got to go choose, choose uh-huh. their favorite restaurant rather than the uh, restaurant of the couple who are actually celebrating their anniversary. So you didn't get to choose the restaurant, but you can choose your attire. Uh, and the Black Tux has many, many different options, many different sizes and styles uh, for whatever you might be looking for. Uh, and they also allow you to cho- uh, to check out those styles and sizes without having to utilize a tape measure. They have the Find My Fit option. You answer some basic questions, and you can basically figure out exactly what will fit. They will send it to you. You can make sure everything fits exactly as you want it to uh, prior to your big event, your big date, your big Chili's outing. Uh, and and then you can make sure that you look and feel your best on that big day. Absolutely. They use 100% mm-hmm. merino wool on their suits, 100% cotton on their shirts, real leather on them shoes, Taylor. They've only just begun. You've got to stay tuned to these Black mm-hmm. Tux guys. And as I mentioned on the previous show, uh, they do actually have some showrooms. There's one near me in Charlotte, North Carolina, where mm-hmm. when things do open up again, you can go in and check stuff out in person if you choose as well. Theblacktux.com in the meantime, though. There you go. Uh, yes, so if you want your wedding or anniversary dinner at Chili's to be remembered for the right reasons, order your pseudo tuxedo <laughs> at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux formal wear for the moment. Ryan, we've talked about some solid curses so far. Let's get back to it. Where would you like to head next? Uh, the curse of the man who celebrated his wedding anniversary at Chili's is where I'd like to go next. Um, do you think anyone else has ever done that before? By oh, way? certainly. Oh, for certainly. Yes. Am I being snobby? Maybe I no, am. not at all. Not at all. I mean, maybe a little bit, but also I'm sure there are people who've done it <laughs> sincerely because it was like maybe the first date they went like in college or the first date after college. Who knows? Maybe it was ironically. Maybe it was very sincerely. But Chili's can hold a special place in many, place in many people's hearts. I know it holds one for Michael Scott. Um, that's It's where business – it's the new – Oh, what's it new? It's like the new cocktail bar or something like that is what he proclaims Chili's to be. Unlike his favorite Italian restaurant, Sbarro's. <laughs> of yeah. course. That's anyway, pizza in New York. Um, <laughs> let's move on to uh, the next curse. Mm. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, the Socceroos Witch yeah. Doctor. Let's oh, go there, This is a good we? one. This is a good one. I got... I got a line for you. What do you get if you cross a bunch of Australians, an angry witch doctor, and a World Cup qualifier? You get... A hilarious curse story. You shall sure I continue, do. Tate? You shall. Okay. So <laughs> I shall indeed. On the road to the 1970 World Cup, the Socceroos, they played against Rhodesia, which is now known as Zimbabwe, of course. They are alleged, Taylor, mm-hmm. to have asked a witch doctor to bury bones near the goalposts in the game to curse the opposition. Result of said burial of bones, Australia won the match three goals to one. But here we go. Problem. It's a big but. Apparently. They neglected to pay their necromancers $1,000 fee. Oh, dear, oh, dear. You've got to pay for your witch doctor, Taylor. You have to pay for your witch doctor. Supposedly, he approached them and was like, hey, do you guys want me to do this? And they were like, yeah, sure, why not? And then he did it. And then after the game, they win 3-1. He then demands $1,000. Apparently, the fee had not been agreed upon. That's a thing that Johnny Warren uh, stressed when he was telling this story. But yeah, uh, once $1,000, Australian players, maybe not as inclined to pay that one. There you go. So maybe you're suspecting some foul play from the witch doctor at mm-hmm. this point. But uh, he, he apparently then committed some more foul play. He cursed the Australians who didn't make it to that 1970 World Cup. They failed to score 
at the 1974 tournament. They didn't qualify again until 2006. And there's a reason they didn't make it till 2006, Taylor. Mm -hmm. And if you are of a superstitious disposition, you'll already know that the Socceroos rediscovered that magic mojo because in 2004, there was a TV documentary fellow called John Safran. He took a TV crew to Africa. He hired another witch doctor, got them to undo the curse, Mm-hmm. And then they got to qualify for the World Cup once again. So yeah. the the Socceroos' continued success and re uh, in the new millennium is down to some witch doctor comeuppance of some sort. Yeah, yeah, because it rebounded, Ryan. That's how curses work. If you don't pay the fee, then the curse rebounds. Uh, I did, I did enjoy <laughs> them sort of like because the story is they don't qualify for the seventy World Cup. They do go to nineteen seventy four, but it goes disastrously. They finish bottom. Then they and then they keep losing playoffs. And rather than blame that on the playoff system, which is why they eventually leave Oceana, they instead say it's the curse, which uh, I, I thought was really great. And then, as you pointed out, yeah, Saffron and uh, and uh, Johnny Warren, the former player, they go back. Uh, they have to. Did you see what the ritual was to uh, appease the spirit? I'd love you to tell me. Uh, yeah, because the original witch doctor is dead. Did you already say that? I didn't. Okay, yeah. so the original when they go back, the original witch witch doctor has passed away. They find another who says he can channel that witch doctor if they go back to the same Rhodesian stadium. They do so where they sacrifice a chicken at midfield. They then return to the Telstra Stadium in Sydney, which is where they're playing the final game of World Cup qualifying. They have to bathe in clay given them to by that by that new witch doctor, and they go on to lose the first leg of the Intercontinental Playoff, but they win the second, uh, advancing on penalties. They go to the World Cup. The curse is dead, Ryan. It didn't even take a thousand dollars it just took apparently chicken blood and clay so hang on they do the curse process uh, the anti-curse process in the stadium at sydney but they lose that game but win in the stadium where they didn't do that process no no no, no. They, they they the rhodesian stadium is the one where the original curse happened when they won 3-1 then but you say they had to go and do this the, the process at the telstra stadium in sydney they had to then bathe in the clay at their home at the for the home leg yes after so they I lost think, that leg they won that leg, didn't they? Didn't they win? Oh, they in, won that. I think they won in Sydney. They lost away in Uruguay. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Now, now, now it checks out completely. It does. I'm with you. It's it's all <laughs> checks out entirely. Well, once again, with this, uh, you, you mentioned it was chicken bones there. Mm-hmm. In in the original circumstance, was it a chicken? I mean, where, where this is like the cats. Where did they get these bones from? I want to know if thing was done humanely. Yeah, and and I also love that like like Johnny Warren presents it as this guy just came up to us and was like, "Hey, do you want me to do this? I've got it all locked down. You'll definitely win." And I I think I need more about that part of the story about like what what did they authorize? Were they the ones who were like, "Hey, we heard chicken bones can be bad for teams." Like who knew what and when and who asked for what and when? I really really want to know if maybe it was actually Johnny Warren was the witch doctor all along. A chicken's traditionally uh, an animal of the occult. I'm not sure they are. I don't know. I, I I guess maybe like they're like easier for like Westerners to get their head around than yeah other animals that maybe would be equally efficient. Who knows? I'm not really aware of the efficacy of uh, animal sacrifice. Nor do I wish to be. Nor do I wish to be. Uh, just so, uh, um, ladies and gents, just so you're up to date here, we're five weeks into the lockdown, and on Total Soccer Show, yes, we are talking about whether chickens are uh, animals of the occult. Yes, that's what we've got to. I mean, you mean again. We're talking about it again. Daryl and I talk about that like once every other month, usually. Usually, if the schedule allows. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, travelers and uh, removal of items. Instead of the bearing of items, I guess. It's the removal of items. This one is about Hibernian and their harp. Um, Hibernian FC, founded in 1875. They win the Scottish Cup in 1887 and 1902. But then, Ryan, from 1902 to 2013, they're the runners-up 
ten times. Is that because Celtic and Rangers have all the money and dominate the competitions? No, of course not. No. It's because during renovations on the Easter Road Stadium in the 1950s, a harp crest was removed from the South Stand, and it was never restored upon completion. Now, why is that important? It's because the Irish harp was meant to be a symbol of the club's Irish roots, and more specifically, their Catholic affiliation. The head of the board at that time was the first, I believe, non-Catholic to be appointed to the position, uh, and he was sort of, to some, seen as like removing connections to Catholicism, connections to Irish Republicanism, and it was instead sort of trying to make the club sanitized. There are many examples of how that is not the case, but that was the prevailing theory, I guess, among certain populations. So an Irish traveler woman uh, angrily placed a curse uh, on the club for that action, for removing their connections to the Catholic faith. During the 2015-2016 campaign, the club's new badge, uh, which was designed in 2001, I believe, which does include an Irish harp, was installed on the facade of the West End. Eight months later, they beat Rangers 3-2 to win the Cup in the 92nd minute uh, of injury time on a winner from David Gray. So you uh, you reconnect to your Catholic Irish roots, and apparently you beat Rangers in the final. Uh, Rangers having some significance there as well for their non-Catholic connections. Uh, the less said about that, the better, because then we get into a whole sectarian thing. But basically, mm. uh, like just paint harps everywhere and you'll win the Scottish Cup is my main takeaway from this one. And you say David Gray scored the winner there after was this after making the album White Ladder? Or <laughs> uh, I think it was it was it was in the process of. <laughs> Very good. Well, it does show that White Guinness is curse proof because they have a harp on their logo. Exactly. Exactly. We all know Nothing that harps, can ever go harps wrong. Are <laughs> yeah. And maybe is this is this the reason why Logan Roy bought the club? <laughs> he brought them in some good luck. Harps. Did he like harps? I forget, is it is it Hibs they bought and he's a Hearts fan or is it Hearts they bought and he's a Hibs fan or other way around? I was trying to remember which way around it was. I think he was a Hearts fan and, and uh, Macaulay, uh, Kieran Culkin bought him Hibs. Is that a, right? A Culkin. Just say A Culkin. A Culkin. Uh, yes, I think, that's, Culkin. I think that's correct. How would I know? I've only been a Hearts fan my entire life, I think is what it says. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good episode. Um, maybe that's a curse for the Culkins for buying the wrong football club. Um, uh, but I think no we can, no conversation about uh, curses in football will ever be complete until we talk uh, angry Bella Goodman. Bella Goodman is the king, uh, the yeah. king of curse stories. I think we can agree, mm-hmm. right? So Bella Goodman, back in the day, uh, we're talking the early '60s. He was a Hungarian manager. He was a Jewish Holocaust survivor as mm-hmm. well, actually, um, who was alleged to have placed a curse over Benfica for over half a century. So uh, Bella Goodman, when he was in charge of Benfica, uh, they won the European Cup in 1961 and 1962. Back-to-back European Cup wins, not so bad. Mm -hmm. He quite rightly uh, asked for a pay rise after that. His request was duly denied. So he took the let's say, slightly unprofessional route of cursing the team well, instead. His uh, request was denied, and then they terminated his contract for even asking, which I thought was the maybe the harsh <laughs> step that justified the curse a little bit. Yeah, we, sure. Let's say it justified a, a, a multi-decade curse. Um, and it, he was alleged to have exclaimed at them, not in a hundred years from now would Benfica ever be European champion. And... Uh, that's kind of held, uh, held held steady since 1962. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, in 2014, mm-hmm. they lost the Europa League final to Sevilla. That was their eighth straight loss in a major yep. European final. Uh, so what are, we, what are we talking here? It's going to be 2062 by the time that Benfica actually get back to the top of the game, by which time uh, I imagine Qatar will have been World Cup champions a few times. 
Um, Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo Jr. Jr. will be Ballon d'Or <laughs> champ at that point, probably. Uh, yeah, so and I think all the all the various Ronaldos will have won the Ballon d'Or at least once. Uh, I think that's the way we're going. But you might be thinking, though, but uh, if and when Bella Goodman passes away, surely the curse is at an end. Well, the answer is you're wrong because he's been dead for a while. But uh, mm-hmm. in the 1990 European Cup in Vienna, uh, uh, club legend Eusebio went to Goodman's grave. He is buried uh, in Vienna and, and prayed for forgiveness. He, uh, uh, I guess, cried at the grave, begged for forgiveness, begged him to lift the curse. They lost 1-0 to Milan. So even in death, Bella Goodman <laughs> will not lift the curse, which... Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Not that he's like sitting there on, on his grave, like arms crossed, like no, but more so just given like everything about him. He is a legendary figure, but he is legendary for falling out with people. Uh, he is, uh, I guess, the one who coined the fr- the sentence, uh, the third season is fatal, which seems to be the Jose Mourinho. Uh, operating policy. Uh, so yep. I think Bella Goodman fell out spectacularly, uh, had an amazing life, but I think could hold a grudge, and it feels like is still holding a grudge to this day, even if he's not uh, on this mortal coil. I do admire Eusebio for that attempt to try mm-hmm. and reverse things, but clearly they've taken the wrong approach. You know how you know how we fix this, right? You pee on corner flags? No, no, no. It's, it's simpler than that. You get John Safran and his TV crew who went to Africa, and he goes and finds the other witch doctor who can uh, relive the spirit of the former witch doctor who placed a curse, and just you know go and get him to uh, envisage the spirit of Bella Gutman to reverse the curse. This guy is the curse reverse um, specialist. I, I, <laughs> so, you know, they just go get him. I want that entire process. What I want more than anything <laughs> to happen is for that entire process to happen. He does channel the spirit of Bella Goodman. Bella Goodman arrives. It's a seance. It's what have you. Bella Goodman is there. He takes over the spirit of the witch doctor and he just flicks off the person and then he just leaves. And it's like, no, I guess the curse is going to endure. It's still there, apparently. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> there is no way of changing that man's mind in death. <laughs> Wonderful. 2062, you waited till Ben Beaker. 2062. <laughs> like it or not. And I also like how it's a very specifically European-based curse. Like, I think Ben Fieker have won the league 25 times and they've won 16 domestic cups since Bella Gutmann uh, placed this curse. So he didn't, he didn't much care for the domestic success. It's mainly that he wanted to keep them off the biggest stage on the continent. Good for him. Yeah, Good for right? Him. Exactly. It's the thing that I guess he felt because they knocked off Madrid. It's his thing. You can't have it anymore. It's mine. I'm taking it with me. I'm taking, I'm taking my European success and I'm going home. Uh, I appreciate that from Bella Goodman. Ryan, I do have one more lesser known one for you if you've got a second. I do, please. Um, it was a while ago, Daryl, he contacted that same witch doctor and he put a curse on any future co-hosts uh, that they would never be allowed to run faster than, than him or win races successfully. And I don't know if that's ever applied to you, if there's ever been a race that didn't go well for you. But if there were, that is because Daryl Grove placed a curse upon you. Oh my god, that does sound applicable. How do I reverse it? <laughs> was there some bones buried under that field I ran on that time? It, it, exactly, exactly. And any other race you've run that you didn't win, bones buried there too. Daryl took care of all of it. He is <laughs> really into this sort of thing. He's the bone king. <laughs> he oh boy. Is. That's, that's what I've always called him. That's what I've always called Daryl. <laughs> Ryan, any other curses? Though, I imagine. <laughs> Ryan, any other curses you wanted to discuss? Or, any, or, or is there one that we've already talked about that you think is maybe... Though you are not one to believe in, in such things, maybe you did find yourself raising an eyebrow thinking, well, maybe, maybe just maybe. I think we've pretty much covered the cursiest curses that ever mm-hmm. cursed, and I thank you for participating in that. I'd, I'd, like to say, I'd like to say the ones I think are most likely, mm-hmm. and I think 
statistically, the Benfica one holds the truest, yeah. doesn't it? And yeah. it's the most famous. Because it, all, in most other instances, you know, touching the cup, hmm, that can have mixed success. I mean, you know, uh, with the St. Mary's Stadium, hmm, they might have won some other... Well, I didn't, actually, not, that's a bad example. Birmingham. They might, they might have won some other games before Barry, Fly, Barry Fry uh, decided to uh, relieve himself mm-hmm. in all corners of the field. And by the way, that does sound very difficult, and uh, going to all four corners yeah. and uh, exercising that kind of control. Maybe, maybe they did lose games because their field was a 60-meter square field. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I, di- I digress. I think that Bella Goodman's curse mm-hmm. is the one that holds the truest. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to think about the Socceroos one as well, just because I enjoy it so much. As do I. The Bella Goodman one, just because the, the way that that sentence is phrased, and it is probably a mistranslation, but just the, like, not in 100 years will you be, uh, not in 100 years from now will Benfica ever be European champion, that that just feels like such a specific phrasing that would be like that would occur when you're screaming it at a person who's wronged you <laughs> that it does feel like like a malignant energy would persist and thus you don't win the European uh, Cup for a very very long time that one does I'm feel real the, um, what's I'm picturing the Benfica board members in the room when he's screaming it out and they're saying was guys was that a double negative does he mean we will win in the next hundred years I'm confused. <laughs> See, the nature of the curse is confusing. And then the seven black cats really does it for me just because that does feel the most like actual sort of sorcery. Take seven cats and bury them at the seven most like energy specific points and the team will never ever win a title. And then you you find all seven and things go well. That one that one that one resonated with me as well, though isn't one I'm going to try. That wins it by a whisker for me because it's most punnable. <laughs> On that wonderful, wonderful note, uh, Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for talking all things curse with me uh, today on the Total Soccer Show. Uh, always my pleasure, never a chore. Or a curse, hopefully. Hopefully.